and welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, here with Professor Akil Amar. Hi, Akil. Hey, Andy. So, you know, we've been having these episodes talking about, you know, books, and in particular, uh, Akil's book, um, and citations, and things like that. And we also have had various guests, but the one episode that we had that seemed to generate the most interest as judging from questions as well as uh, viewer or listener statistics uh, was the episode that we had on the Texas abortion law. And after all, this is a constitutional podcast. So, you know, we are excited to discuss some of the things that have been going on uh, before the Supreme Court um, lately. Um, but I think we're going to do it on, you know, perhaps a more academic or higher level uh, discussion. So uh, this week, um, oral arguments uh, were heard in a uh, gun control case, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. Um, and uh, so naturally, that case raises uh, discussion in the media about the Second Amendment, about gun rights, gun control, uh, and so forth. And of course, there's lots of left versus right jockeying, and uh, so it has a political component as well. So we're going. This is going to. This has prompted us to have a discussion of some of these issues, but we're not going to immediately jump into the case with its particular angle on gun rights, the intricacies of the oral argument that took place this week, or even the facts of the case, and not right away anyway. Instead, we're going to first give you some background from the perspective of a leading constitutional law professor. Guess who? Uh, on how to think about the fundamental constitutional issues that are implicated by cases of this type. Uh, to give you a framework, in fact, for approaching not only the Bill of Rights, but enumerated and unenumerated rights in general. So this will be a bit of a master class, so we can all have a common knowledge base, and so we can attack this specific case with that toolbox available to us. And in doing this, uh, it happens that issue meets expert uh, perfectly here. So we'll talk a little bit about Akil's place in the academic pantheon on these specific matters. And then we'll discuss how his attempt to write about some aspects of the Bill of Rights wound up drawing his attention to the Second Amendment in particular, and how that in turn led back to insights that not only inform the way we look at gun cases like the New York case, but in fact a large chunk of all constitutional law cases. And we'll see how the Second Amendment, which again began as an afterthought to Akil, wound up as a key part of a coherent theory that we need in order to tackle this New York case. And in doing this, you'll learn a lot about that theory. So again, a master class, so we have all the skills and tools uh, to look at the gun case for which the Supreme Court held oral argument this week. And then in our episode next week, you know, we will have prepared the ground and these tools will be brought to bear, and we'll examine the case together in a sophisticated way. So um, thanks for that invitation for me once again to thump my own chest and toot my own horn, but to talk, to connect to our conversation about uh, authority and academic authority in particular, expertise. Um, our audience could do lots of things right now, but um, they're listening to our podcast um, instead of doing something else um, uh, uh, 
And why should they listen to me bloviate? Um, there are lots of other people who have views. And, and my claim is, because I actually have thought about this, and maybe uniquely, truthfully, um, in the world. I don't have a big dog in the fight. I'm not on, on this particular um, issue about guns outside the home. I could argue it square. I could argue it round. I, um, I, can, sh- I can show you the different aspects um, um, of, of the issue. I have friends on, on both sides of the debate. And let me tell you how I first started thinking about it, because yes, this is about um, uh, n- not really my current book, which doesn't talk so much about this, but, but, but earlier um, articles and books that I wrote. So um, we talked earlier about um, uh, a book, my first real book for a, a pop audience, a, um, a trade audience. It's called The Bill of Rights, Creation and Reconstruction. And it works through, works the reader through all the amend- all the clauses of the so-called Bill of Rights, Amendments 1 through 10. That article in turn built on um, uh, that book, in turn, built on earlier articles, two uh, big ones that I wrote in the uh, Law Journal, one of which is one of the most, 100 most cited uh, law review articles of all time. Um, I actually didn't care very much, truthfully, about the Second Amendment. I didn't really have a, particularly, uh, uh, a particular view of it, but I had some ideas initially about the First Amendment and about the Fourth Amendment and the Fifth and some of the other amendments, and I, thought, I said, well, if I'm going to try to write a, an article about the Bill of Rights as a whole, I need to actually develop some expertise. I need to study a little bit more the Second and Third Amendments. So I did so a bit in this in, uh, first article in the Yale Law Journal called The Bill of Rights Creation, uh, the, the, um, the Bill of Rights as a Constitution, which is 1991. And then um, uh, I uh, followed it up with another article in the, the Yale Law Journal from 1992. How does the Reconstruction Amendment, uh, the, four, we, the 14th Amendment, change how we think about um, the original Bill of Rights? The original Bill of Rights, my friends, you see, uh, only applied against the federal government. The first word of our First Amendment is Congress. Congress shall make no law of a certain sort. The original uh, establishment clauses Congress can't have an established church. Actually, but states were allowed to have established churches. And indeed, Congress had no authority to disestablish state churches. So the Bill of Rights begins with a limit on the federal government and only the federal government. That's why it says Congress shall make no law, um, uh, even on the topic of respecting an establishment of religion. Oh, and the Tenth Amendment is all about states' rights. And just to rep- and, and not only can Congress not have a national church, it um, and where states can have state-established churches, Congress can't disestablish a state's church. For Congress to try to disestablish a state church at the founding would be to make a law respecting on the topic of, in regards to, um, uh, establishment of religion. So the original First Amendment was a state's rights-like idea to some extent, not entirely, but on establishment of religion. The original Tenth Amendment says state's rights, Congress butt out. Oh, and the original Second Amendment originally was in part about state and local militias, in part as a check against the federal government. And indeed, the entire Bill of Rights, all the amendments, limited only the federal government. That's one, that was one of my big themes in the Bill of Rights as a Constitution. It's more about federalism than you think and about structure, structural constitutional law. Um, 
juries, which are prominently mentioned in the Bill of Rights, are about representation, like the House of Representatives. So my claim is, was the original Bill of Rights is about individual rights, but also about structural things like representation and federalism. Oh, but does that change after Reconstruction? Because after Reconstruction, and what we call the Bill of Rights gets, in fact, it's, and I say what we call because it, it doesn't describe itself in the document as a Bill of Rights. But we call it the Bill of Rights, and in part we call it the Bill of Rights because the framers of the 14th Amendment after the Civil War called it the Bill of Rights, and they thought that these rights that were enumerated in the original Constitution against the federal government should actually now um, be protected against state and local governments as well. So we move from Congress shall make no law in the First Amendment, um, uh, abridging certain things, to the 14th Amendment, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge. Now you see that here are the same words, shall make no law abridge, but now the federalism uh, dimension has been inverted. States and therefore localities, which are really part of states, cities and counties, can't make certain kinds of, or make or enforce certain kinds of laws. So uh, my follow-up article began to think, which is the 1992 ELR, I began to think, well, the original Second Amendment was in part about militias, keeping a check on which are state and locally organized, keeping a check on the federal standing army or a fed, um, if um, the original Second Amendment grows out of Lexington and Concord and Bunker Hill and the American Revolution, it's largely about um, local resistance against central officialdom. How then does that apply against the states themselves? In technical legal parlance, does the Second Amendment incorporate against the states the way many other amendments uh, incorporate against the states? And now states can't abridge these things. So that was 1991, 1992. I eventually fold all of this into a 1998 book, The Bill of Rights, Creation and reconstruction, and and here's the the point that I was, which is really a chest thumping and and horn tooting, because I wanted to write about the Bill of Rights as a whole initially, and then how it was modified um, after the Civil War. So the book is the Bill of Rights creation, that's the founding era and Reconstruction. Because I wanted to do that, I had to actually, as a scholar. Um, focus on each and every clause of the Bill of Rights, become a bit of an expert on each part, so I could tell you in the book about each part and how it fit into something panoramically. And truthfully, I'm not sure that there's another living scholar out there um, of the you know uh, of the many billion people in the world who have actually written as a scholar about each and every part of the Bill of Rights, each and every clause, and about how it fits together. As a whole, there was one scholar who had done that. He was an historian named Leonard Levy, but he passed away several years ago. But most constitutional scholars would specialize in this area that. They, maybe the speech clause or the press clause. Um, maybe the entire, all the expression clauses of the First Amendment, speech, press, petition, assembly. Maybe if they were really adventurous, they'd throw in the religion clauses, free exercise and, and non-establishment. You know, maybe they'd be expert on three or four other things as well, but they wouldn't have written about each and every clause of the Bill of Rights, and I have. So I started writing about the Second Amendment, not because I cared particularly truthfully about guns, because they had a strong view one way or the other. I started writing about it because I actually had strong views about some of the other provisions 
of the Bill of Rights and some interesting and I thought unique things to say, for example, about the Fourth Amendment and the exclusionary rule. We've talked about that in previous episodes, but I couldn't get from the, the First Amendment. And I had some ideas about that, how it's about freedom of speech and debate and Parlement, parla, uh, from the French Patelet to speak. So I had ideas about the First Amendment. And I had ideas about, oh, and the Establishment Clause. Oh, it's a states' rights provision. Oh, and I had ideas about the Fourth Amendment and how it's, 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 it's about, um, um, it's not about the exclusionary rule. But I couldn't get from the first to, oh, and I had ideas about the Tenth Amendment and states' rights and their role generally in the system. But I couldn't get from the first to the fourth to the tenth without talking about all the clauses in between, including the second and third. So the reason that our audience should pay attention um, to, 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 cause you could be doing other things with your time is I've actually thought a lot about the second amendment, um, in many different articles, starting in 91 and 92, then a book, then another article, then, um, op-ed pieces. I've ended up coming back again and again and again to second amendment and related issues. Um, over time, I really am an expert on that. And the Supreme court has cited me uh, quite a lot on this topic in the, the most important Second Amendment case, which is um, a, a case called City of Chicago versus McDonald, not a case called Heller. We'll talk about all of that uh, over the next few minutes, Andy. So, so the court actually is taken seriously. What I, I have to say, I, I am a scholar on this. I've tried to locate my Second Amendment ideas in the context of ideas about um, other rights. So, yeah, I do claim expertise on this. Oh, and I'm not particularly ideological one way or another. Um, I can see the issues on both sides. So your, your writing, as you say, is, is uniquely panoramic on this um, compared with other scholars because you've examined the entirety of the Bill of Rights. Um, and you have a theory that it's interrelated, that it's you wrote the Bill of Rights as a constitution, you know, and so forth. Um, but uh, has that theory that it is interrelated been generally accepted, um, or because you would think that if it if it were, then other scholars would make it their business to study the entirety of it since it's interrelated, um, or is it that because of the nature of your study of this, that you you know that you are an advocate for this theory, um, but someone that has a one amendment at a time theory might come to completely different conclusions, and that both positions are considered legitimate right now. I think that um, my views have been very um, generously uh, received by other scholars. A lot of scholars actually have cited favorably to this. Not very many have emulated it because it's a very, truthfully, it's a very hard thing to do to be an expert on each and every one of these things. You can admire a decathlete um, without actually thinking that you can be a decathlete. Mm -hmm. Um, So, um, uh, back then, um, the name was Bruce Jenner, um, uh, and, and, and Andy is nodding his head because we come from a generation where we remember the Wheaties commercials and, uh, and the, uh, Olympics. Um, uh, so, so I claiming I'm a decathlete of a certain sort. Uh, so, so I would say, um, the work is widely well uh, respected, um, very um, generously received, but not so many other people have actually even tried to do that. Um, since in our last episode, we um, I talked about openings, I'm going to read one more time the opening paragraph of my Bill of Rights book. Um, 
Uh, and, and I'll just identify a couple of uh, uh, features. One, when I write these words, just the opening paragraph, no one else is really talking about the Second Amendment in main, among mainstream constitutional scholars. Um, the, the article was first written in 1991, the book in 1998. The first major Supreme Court case is still 15 years um, in the future, um, the Heller case. Um, so, so um, at the time I'm writing, there no mainstream constitutional scholars actually written an, uh, uh, an article on um, uh, the Second Amendment, with the possible exception of of Sandy Levinson. Um, uh, he, I, I helped him get published a piece in the Yale Law Journal on the Second Amendment at about this time. And, and he wrote about it because he's a gadfly, he's a provocateur, and no one else was writing about it. And he says, hey, why, why do so many people write about the First Amendment, both the speech clauses and the religion clauses, and, and, no, one writes, uh, and no one's writing about the Second? What he said in that article, I think, was a little um, too um, exuberant for my taste. He, he, you know, he's a kind of a proto-insurrectionist. And I think, no, Sandy, after Civil War, we, you know, we don't really want militias storming um, the, the, the national capital. Thank you. Um, um, so, uh, but apart from Sandy, who was, I think, being his usual playful and provocative self, I know of no mainstream constitutional scholar who had written anything about the Second Amendment at the time. There, there was one uh, person who wrote, um, and only one really important article in a mainstream, a top-cited law, l- law review. It was a piece by the, the now late Don Cates, a Yale Law School graduate who really wasn't a full-time academic. Um, it was a piece in the Michigan Law Review, um, and I read it with great interest because I needed to say something about the Second Amendment, and that was the only mainstream piece out there. Uh, so that's the world... Um, uh, when I first wrote um, the, uh, this opening to an article that was called The Bill of Rights as a Constitution, which then became the opening, um, uh, that was back in 1991, to my 1998 book, The Bill of Rights, Creation and Reconstruction. And I just want to re- reread that opening because it actually describes a world that's different from the world that we have today. Uh, this is from the introduction to the book. Opening paragraph. The Bill of Rights stands as the high temple of our constitutional order, America's Parthenon, and yet we lack a clear view of it. Instead of being studied holistically, the bill has been broken up into discrete blocks of text, with each segment examined in isolation. In a typical law school curriculum, for example, the First, Ninth, and Tenth Amendments are integrated into an introductory survey course on constitutional law. The Sixth, Eighth and much of the Fifth Amendments are taught in criminal procedure. The Seventh Amendment is covered in civil procedure, and the Fifth Amendment takings clause is featured in prop. The Fifth Amendment takings clause is featured in property. The Fourth Amendment, because it becomes a course unto itself, or is perhaps pushed into criminal procedure or evidence because of the judicially created exclusionary rule, and the Second and Third are ignored. As late as 1998, when the book came out. Um, it really was the case that mainstream con law courses in law schools across the country utterly ignored the Second and Third Amendments. Today, they still basically ignore the Third Amendment. There's not a lot of discussion about it. It's the one about quartering troops in homes. But um, uh, the Second Amendment has now become much more a part of standard 
constitutional law discourse, part of the culture wars generally, uh, abortion on one side, guns on the other, uh, gay rights and yet a third uh, corner. Um, but in 1991, when the first article came out, and 98, when the book came out, the Second Amendment was just not part of, let's call it the canon, the, 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 um, the set of, of, of issues typically discussed in a, an ordinary um, introductory course on American constitutional law. Uh, and I didn't write about it because I cared very much about the issue but because I wanted to get from the first to the fourth to the tenth and say something about things in between. And once I got into it, I actually found it's theoretically quite interesting um, and uh, for reasons that we will talk about. In in a nutshell, um, this right to keep and bear arms meant one thing, on my view, at the founding um, in 1790s with the Bill of Rights, something quite different, actually, um, after the Civil War at the time of the Fourteenth um, uh, Amendment, and might mean something different yet again today. If so, it's a very interesting case study in constitutional method. And I think that uh, you know you you consider yourself an originalist, and I think that people uh, associate that with the notion that things are fixed in some way in time. Um, whether it's you know at the time of the original constitution or at the time of the drafting and passage of various amendments, that things get fixed at those times. And now you're talking here about vi- these various times, various time posts that are significant. Um, and how do you, how do you reconcile those two positions? That's what makes this such an interesting case study. You see, before I came along. Uh, the one of the biggest issues of American constitutional law was the question of um, uh, whether the 14th Amendment, adopted after the Civil War, incorporated the Bill of Rights against the states. That's how people talked about it. It's called the incorporation debate. Um, and many people thought it's probably the single biggest issue of American constitutional law in the mid 20th century. Why well, don't explain and, to our audience what it, what that would mean for those that don't understand the concept of incorporation? That this original the question is whether um, the uh, rights enumerated in Amendments one through ten, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, free exercise of religion. Um, the right to keep and bear arms, the right against uh, unreasonable searches and seizures, um, uh, the right against double jeopardy, the right to compulsory um, of a, a criminal defendant to compel the production of witnesses in his favor, to have a speedy and public trial, to have a, a, a local jury trial, the right to, to, to be free from um, uh, excessive bail um, or uh, cruel and unusual punishments, whether that constellation of rights um, enumerated along with others in Amendments 1 through 8, especially the, 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 uh, the early amendments of the Bill of Rights, whether that set of rights, which originally protected people only against the federal government, should also be interpreted to apply against states and localities, whether these rights should be incorporated against states and localities by dint of the 14th Amendment. So that was the debate. And after the 14th Amendment was adopted, and um, for the first half century, courts did not, in general, apply the Bill of Rights, incorporate the Bill of Rights against the states, 
but led by, and there were dissenters. The great John Marshall Harlan dissented. Uh, the, John Marshall Harlan, the elder, who also dissented famously in Plessy versus Ferguson. He said, actually, the 14th Amendment was designed to apply the Bill of Rights, to incorporate the Bill of Rights against states and localities. Um, I think he was basically right. Um, a heroic justice in the middle of the 20th century took um, up the cause uh, afresh, Hugo Lafayette Black, um, and initially was in dissent, but eventually in the Warren Court prevailed. And um, in uh, the, the, the Warren Court era, most of the clauses of the Bill of Rights came to be applied against the states, incorporated against the states, but not all of them had. Their Second Amendment, for example, had not in um, the middle of the, tw- of the 20th century. There hadn't been a, a Second Amendment case really um, against the federal government that made clear that there was an individual right to have a gun and, and, um, outside the confines of an organized um, militia. So there wasn't a lot of Second Amendment case law about um, uh, individual rights outside a militia context um, against the federal government, and there surely was no then incorporation of, of that right, whatever its contours, against the states um, uh, when I started writing these articles in, in 1991 and, and then the book. So, so, um, so there's a reason why con law courses didn't talk very much about the Second Amendment or incorporation because there weren't very many cases, and most constitutional law courses are all about the cases. Um, and the Supreme Court had not um, um, basically told us what it thought the Second Amendment meant um, and definitely hadn't um, ruled on whether th- that right, whatever its contours, applied against states and localities. Let me say it one final way about your question, which is incorporation. Most of our audience who haven't thought about the matter might be surprised to realize that almost everything that they think is, quote, a Bill of Rights case, unquote, is not a Bill of Rights case. Almost almost all the landmark cases that ordinary people think of as involving the Bill of Rights technically involve the 14th Amendment because they technically involve states or localities, not the federal government. I'll name some of the cases. So New York Times versus Sullivan is a famous free speech, free press case, but it's against Alabama. Um, And Griswold versus Connecticut, a a right of privacy in your home case, oh, that's against Connecticut. Lawrence, uh, gay rights cases, Lawrence versus Texas. Um, Or Obergefell, that's actually, again, about um, a a state. Um, Miranda versus Arizona, Map v. Ohio, Escobedo versus Illinois, um, Gideon versus Wainwright is about um, Florida and how it has to provide um, appointed counsel to indigent defendants. To repeat, Brown versus Topeka Board of Education, um, that's that's Topeka, Kansas. Uh, Tinker versus Des Moines is a right about student um, expression um, in Des Moines, Iowa. Almost all the, the landmark, quote, Bill of Rights unquote, cases that come to um, the mind of, uh, of someone in our audience are technically not Bill of Rights cases, um, uh, but um, actually 14th Amendment incorporation cases. But now here's the rub. Um, Hugo Black's ideas were controversial. They were controverted. Lots of people said, oh, the Bill of Rights wasn't about applying, incorporating the, um, 
I assume the 14th Amendment wasn't about applying, incorporating uh, the Bill of Rights against the states. And even if it was, well, then why don't all the provisions of the Bill of Rights apply? Because even today, states um, have, uh, the Supreme Court has not required states to abide by the rules in the uh, Bill of Rights about um, grand juries in um, uh, serious felony cases and a right of um, uh, a civil jury in all important um, uh, um, civil cases uh, at common law, contract cases, tort cases, and the like, non-criminal cases. Yeah, I think it was striking. Uh, even you know, to me, when I heard this, uh, your your explanation here for the first time. I mean, we tend to think of something like freedom of speech, you know, political speech as being inherent to the notion of being American. But of course, in the South, before the Civil War, if you, you know, distributed uh, abolitionist literature, you could be given the death penalty. Right. Um, The Reverend Daniel Wirth was prosecuted um, uh, for uh, preaching against slavery, for example, before the Civil War. And that's why I'm with the first Justice Harlan. I'm with Hugo Black in believing that the 14th Amendment was, in fact, designed to um, uh, protect basic rights um, against states and localities. The Republican Party platform of 1856, uh, or not platform, but slogan, um, their version of Make America Great Again or Hope and Change or um, uh, uh, I Like Ike um, uh, um, uh, was free speech, free press, free soil, free men, free labor, free mont. So they believed in free speech and, and free press, which they thought were being abridged um, in the, the, the American Southland. And so um, uh, when John Bingham um, in the House of Representatives um, explained to his fellow House members what the 14th Amendment, that he, Section 1, that he helped draft meant, he said again and again and again um, uh, th- that it was basically about um, um, the Bill of Rights. And he used uh, it was a phrase that he used actually 12 times um, in, um, uh, a part- in, in, in one particular speech. Let me um, read to you the, the speech of, of what the leading senator said at the time. His name was Jacob Howard. Uh, so here's a speech that Howard gave. And he's glossing the words of the 14th Amendment say, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges, immunities of citizens of the United States. And he says, um, well, the privileges and use cannot be fully defined in their entire extent and precise nature, but they surely include, he says, quote, the personal rights guaranteed and secured by the first eight amendments to the Constitution, such as the freedom of speech and of the press, the right of the people peaceably to assemble and petition the government for address of grievances, the right to keep and bear arms, the right to be exempted from the courting of uh, soldiers in a house without the consent of the owner, the right to be exempt from unreasonable searches and seizures, um, the right of an accused person to be informed by the nature of the accusation against him, and his right to be tried by an impartial jury of the vicinage, also the right to be secure against excessive bail and against cruel and unusual punishment. So that's just all a direct quote. And here's what he goes on to say. Courts have said 
that these rights apply only against the federal government. And indeed, he's right. A landmark Supreme Court case from 1833 by John Marshall, a case called Barron v. Baltimore, held that basically what we call the Bill of Rights, these rights in the early amendments, apply only against the federal government. John Bingham had read Barron, Jake in the House of Representatives, he's the sponsor of the 14th Amendment, Congressman. Jacob Howard, the leading senator, also a sponsor of the 14th Amendment, um, knew the same uh, um, stuff. And they both say, Bingham in the House, Howard in the Senate, that, that this amendment that they've drafted would overrule Barron because it says no state shall abridge these things. Um, and the leading newspapers covered um, their speeches um, uh, prominently. So I believe as an originalist that the framers of the 14th Amendment and the ratifiers of the 14th Amendment, a, design, a designed and approved amendment that at its core applies, incorporates um, these, um, uh, these provisions against states and localities. But now here's the tricky thing, Andy. It's possible that um, they understand freedom of the speech, freedom of the press, the right to keep and bear arms somewhat differently than did people in the 1790s. Well, if they think that these rights now apply against states and localities, but they have a somewhat different understanding of them in the 1860s, now originalism is becoming a little bit complicated. I need to understand, actually, um, as a good constitutional interpreter, one, what these words meant when they were added to the Constitution in, 17, in the 1790s, uh, proposed by James Madison in 1789 and ratified by the states over the next two years. So you need to understand what, for example, um, the right to keep and bear arms meant at the founding, in the founding period. But then they also need to understand, because it might be different, what people thought those words, keep and bear arms, meant at the time of the 14th Amendment. Um, and now originalism becomes a little bit more complicated, hence, um, and, and Hugo Black kind of um, uh, fuzzed, uh, uh, fudged over, uh, papered over um, uh, all of those complexities by just assuming that they meant the same thing in 1866 as they had meant in 1791, but I wasn't so sure. And Black also um, assumed away the fact that some of these rights originally were states' rights provisions. Well, if they were, t- at least in part. Well, if in some degree they were states' rights provisions, how then do they sensibly incorporate against states? So the Tenth Amendment says, well, that's just not states' rights, so that's not a privilege or a means of citizens. Fine. Okay. But the Second Amendment was my great case study because maybe at the founding, there was both an original, um, there was both an individual rights component, maybe to have a gun in your home for self-protection or to carry it um, 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 in various private ways, alongside something that was closer to a state right, the right of a state to have an organized militia um, um, able, capable of defending against um, a, a lawless federal military incursions or something. So if the original Second Amendment had a state's rights component to it, as well as an individual rights component, maybe only the individual rights component sensibly applies against states later on, the 1860s, 
Um, oh, so now incorporation is going to be a little bit more complicated. Um, I developed this black pushed a theory called total incorporation. Everything applies against the states and localities, lock, stock and barrel. That has never prevailed because, as I mentioned to you before, even today, the Supreme Court has not applied incorporated against states. The Fifth Amendment um, a requirement that um, all uh, um, serious felony defendants have a, 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 an indictment by a grand jury. That, that's true at the federal level under the Fifth Amendment, but not in state courts today. Why state, not? Because the court hasn't incorporated But it. why haven't they? Oh, well, we, we're going to need more episodes on, on that, Andy. We, we can't go, you know, everywhere, okay? So, okay, but it's not, a, it's not a logical point that's related to this other... Well, I'm going I'm to come to it in just a second. So, so Black would have said Fifth Amendment, self, uh, Fifth Amendment grand jury. Black would have said the Seventh Amendment civil jury requirement, that in all common law cases involving more than um, $20, you have a right to a, a civil jury. The court has yet to incorporate that. So Black had a theory of total incorporation, and he got almost all that he wanted, but not everything, okay? And the, and the Second Amendment just didn't come up. There just wasn't a case either way on it when he was on, on, on the bench. People didn't talk, And the Third Amendment just didn't come up. But um, almost every right that came before the Warren Court, they basically said, yeah, that applies against the states. Some, some, some of these rights, they had actually begun to do that even before Black came along in the, in the 1920s and 30s. But, but Black and the Warren Court dramatically expanded. Black's theory was total incorporation. The court instead did a thing called selective incorporation, in which they basically decided the issue um, retail, not wholesale, right by right, Clause by clause, they decided, is this fundamental? If it is, we'll apply it against the states. Um, um, and somehow, though, they didn't, they, they, they weren't willing to say, oh, civil juries are fundamental, grand juries are fundamental. So that's, that's a, a, and they never really talked about the Second Amendment or the Third Amendment. So that was a thing called selective incorporation. Amar comes along and says, actually, there's a better way to think about incorporation, which, to repeat, is one of the arguably the biggest theoretical issue in American constitutional law in the middle of the 20th century, this incorporation of aid. Can I just, uh, can I just interrupt for a second? I think a, a useful way to think about incorporation, or at least the way I think about it, um, is that uh, when, the, when the original constitution was being drafted and there was a, a need for the Bill of Rights that was perceived, the, the threat was considered to be that the federal government was going to be too strong and that the states needed a certain degree of protection from the federal government. Right. And because that's... it's adopted in the shadow of an American revolution, which is led by a, an alliance of local colonial governments against an imperial center. And the Second Amendment flows from that very naturally. Um, this is, um, um, if you're a movie fan, Han Solo and Luke Skywalker and a ragtag be- a te- a band of local amateurish rebels against um, uh, uh, an, an empire that, that has a, a, a massive bureaucracy and army and is, and, is, and is corrupt and overbearing. That's the original vision. Our Constitution, our Bill of Rights comes out of the American Revolution, which are localists against the imperial center. And now, Andy, you understand why the Second Amendment is obvious, and so are local juries because they are very similar to local militias. Um, militiamen, in a certain way, are jurors with guns in their hands. They're um, amateur 
um, localists organized by local governments, a raid against professionals of the central government. The militias arrayed against central um, soldiers, standing army, juries against judges and, and prosecutors who are bureaucratic paid officials of the central government. Juries are local, militias are local. Juries are amateurs, um, militias are amateurs. A jury duty is one of your responsibilities as a virtual a virtuous citizen, so is militia duty. These are kind of connected. And Juries are at the heart of the original Bill of Rights. The um, the, um, Fifth Amendment is about grand juries. The Sixth Amendment is about criminal trial juries, what we call pettit juries, pettit meaning small, petite, 12-person grand juries are 23. The Seventh Amendment is about civil juries, um, a right against uh, a right to um, non-excessive bail or a right against, to be more precise, against excessive bail is a right about judges acting without juries. Um, rights against cruel and unusual punishment. That's rights against judges in the sentencing phase, acting without juries. I believe that the Fourth Amendment, which is about search and seizure, is enforced in part, but not by an exclusionary rule, but by civil juries. When the government breaks into your house um, um, uh, in, in improper ways, you can sue that government official, and a jury will decide whether that was a reasonable intrusion or not, because if it's unreasonable, it's unconstitutional, and the local jury decides that. So on my view... Founding is about localists against an imperial center, and it's not a surprise that individual rights and sort of states' rights are, are intertwined, and, um, and you see that with the militias, and you see that with juries. You see it ends with the Tenth Amendment. Um, local churches, uh, are, uh, lo- uh, states and localities can have established churches, but there can't be a national establishment. It's going to be left up to, to local option as it is in, in, in Central Europe. In Central Europe, the peace was maintained um, by um, saying there won't be an empire-wide policy on religion. We're going to leave it up to each little um, uh, duchy or um, a principality. The religion of the prince will be the religion of the principality. Cus regio, eus religio, peace of Augsburg, peace of Westphalia of 1648, peace of Augsburg of 1555. The original First Amendment was more like that. It, was, it ends with the Tenth Amendment, um, because the American Revolution is about states' rights and local rights. But, and I, I can see it on your face, Andy, after the Civil War, we have a completely different vision of everything. The good guys are the central government, the boys in blue. It's not, oh, those bad British redcoats, oh, those bad imperial stormtroopers in, in, in Star Wars. That's U.S. Grant. That's, that's the boys in blue. And, and we're much more skeptical of the local militias that took up arms against a duly elected government and tried to storm the Capitol, so to speak. Um, so, so the Second Amendment, which was pro-militia um, and anti-standing army, and it was about localism and individual rights, that's going to be all so much more complicated after a civil war where the good guys are the central government, some of the bad guys are these local militias. So, and, and Hugo Black didn't sort of quite talk about all of that. Along comes Amar and says, here's the way to think about it. Not mechanical incorporation, just a word processing change. Delete federal and replace with state or federal, but everything else stays the same. It can't quite, because how do you apply states' rights against states quite? Um, that's a little weird. Selective incorporation, clause by clause. Okay, yes, look at it more in a more fine-grained way, retail rather than wholesale. But, but technically, you're not incorporating clauses. 
you're identifying privileges and immunities of citizens. And in the course of, you're filtering them in some ways. You're looking at a Second Amendment and you're saying, well, the, the states' rights stuff doesn't make sense to apply against the states, but there's an individual rights component, you know, and, and that actually can pass through the membrane, through the filter, you know, like um, 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 uh, um, osmosis and diffusion, you know, through a membrane. So a refining corporation is the idea. This is the idea that I coined. Um, and it's and it's been very well received and, and widely respected that in in the course of applying a right, incorporating it against states, you actually have to think about how that right was understood in the 1860s, the 1860s and not the 1790s. And it might very well be that certain aspects of the right get changed in the process of being incorporated against states. So originalism is a little more complicated so need to understand the founding vision, but also the reconstruction vision, which is why the book, the 1998 book is entitled the bill of rights, creation and reconstruction. It has two parts. It has a bunch of chapters, but two main parts, part one creation, part two reconstruction. If you are a Christian, the analogy would be old Testament, new Testament. Christians, in fact, read um, what they call, what we call the Old Testament, through the prism of the New Testament. We read the book of Isaiah as if it says a virgin shall give birth rather than a young woman shall give birth. Um, We construe the personality of God not merely as um, Yahweh, um, uh, uh, um, who's actually a bit of a terrifying uh, personality, in in fact. Um, But um, we read the Old Testament through the prism of the teachings of this uh, um, reformist rabbi um, uh, uh, from Nazareth, um, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, who says, oh, no, the personality of God is God as Abba, Father. So if you're a Christian, you're actually reading older texts through the prism of later texts. And I say, actually, originalism done right has to understand not just the founding vision, but the reconstruction vision, which might be different and is later in time. Oh, and there's one final complication, Andy. Maybe some of these fundamental rights, these privileges and immunities of citizens that no state shall abridge, maybe actually um, they didn't identify all of them in 1866. And if they didn't, if there are additional rights that are out there, and one way to find them is to actually ask, what do Americans think are their fundamental rights? Maybe that means we need to ask the question not just about 1791 and 1866, but what do Americans today think their fundamental rights are in um, 2021? And that's a third time period. And it's possible that a phrase like the right to keep and bear arms means one thing at the founding, a second thing in in Reconstruction, and maybe a slightly different thing today. And, And that's what interests me actually about the Second Amendment, not actually the specific facts of, 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 of gun rights um, uh, in this case, but the theoretical structure of how to think about rights in America and how to do originalism right and how to think about unenumerated rights. Because final point, suppose actually um, a right didn't exist at the founding and it didn't exist in 1866, but lots of people think it exists today. Well, what do you mean, Professor? Why, how do you, if, if it's not enumerated, um, why do you think that lots of people um, believe it today? Oh, maybe because today it's in, almost every state constitution 
Well, that would be evidence that people think is a fundamental right, even if it's not in the federal constitution. Um, and maybe it wasn't in all sorts of state constitutions in 1791 or in 1866, but it is in all sorts of state constitutions today. How to think about that? Oh, and it turns out that the, the right to actually, for example, use gun for, for recreation, recreational and sporting purposes that wasn't so clear in state constitutions in 1791, not so clear in 1866, but I promise you it's in a lot of state constitutions today, and that may be relevant to the Supreme Court case that's under consideration, that, that this recreational right, the right to, to have a gun and to maybe take it outside your home when you go to the shooting range um, or for some um, sporting competition, um, many, many state constitutions today, or for hunting, affirm a right to have a gun outside the home in, 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 in express ways that actually don't have um, counterparts in 1791 state constitutions or even 1866 state constitutions. So this, this notion of freeing the um, privileges and immunities from perhaps the tyranny of the moment, right, the tyranny of the moment of adoption, I mean, perhaps that could be viewed as a form of incorporation of the Ninth Amendment. Exactly so, and that's just how I put it in my book on the Bill of Rights, um, Creation and Reconstruction. And you've read most of my stuff. I don't know if you've actually read that book. I've read some um, of it, but I don't believe I've read anything about the Ninth Amendment in there. So, but because you're a very, very careful um, uh, uh, reader and a smart cookie, you, you anticipated just the move I, I made. So in effect, I say, um, whether you call um, unenumerated rights, um, privileges and immunities of citizens um, uh, 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 just generically, or whether you say actually what we really are doing is incorporating the Ninth Amendment the way we're incorporating um, the free speech clause or the, um, or the free exercise clause, um, they, they kind of converge. Um, but once again, um, what you'd be doing in part is being interested in um, the Ninth Amendment or unenumerated rights as understood maybe in 1866 and not merely in 1791. Um, and you, what you'd be asking in part is, were they thinking about rights that could be discovered um, and, uh, and evolve even in later generations? Here's the example that I um, used for that. And again, I pick some of these examples, not because they, I care the most about them on the, on the merits, but because they, in, they, they best illuminate the hard um, intellectual questions of how you do constitutional law the right way. Is there a right, I ask, to, um, of a criminal defendant to testify in his own criminal case, in his own defense? And the answer to that question today is, of course, no state can deprive a criminal defendant of the right to take the stand if the criminal defendant wants to take the stand. That's 9-0 in the United States Supreme Court in multiple um, cases since the 1960s. So everyone, left, right, and center, agrees with that. Here's the interesting question. Where did that right come from? Okay, Because it's not specified in the original Bill of Rights. The original Bill of Rights says you can't be forced to be a, a witness against yourself. Fifth Amendment self, uh, compelled self-incrimination clause, but doesn't say you have a right to testify if you want. And indeed, at the founding, um, so not only is this not in the Fifth Amendment, the federal government doesn't let you testify on your um, uh, uh, in, a, in your own criminal case. 
nor, and it's not in any state, this right is not in any state constitution. And indeed, every single state in 1791, 1789 to 91, prohibits criminal defense from taking a stand. Um, and, and it did that, uh, so in part as a favor to them because it, it was, uh, the, the theory was, if you, you, if you are allowed to take the stand, you'll take it. And, um, and you're going to lie to protect, to save your, your, your skin, and you're going to commit a mortal sin by lying or something like that. You committed a two-bit offense, but lying on the stand is, you know, a, a, a much greater crime. And the government will have led you into temptation, so to speak. Okay, that's the founding vision. For your own benefit, we won't let you take the stand because you'll be tempted to lie. Um, and, 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 and in general, we only want people who are disinterested uh, um, uh, to take the stand, not people who have an interest in the case. Okay, well, you could say, ah, well, here's what Amar's going to do. His standard movie is going to say, well, that wasn't true in 1791, but it is true in 1866, so that's why it's, um, uh, we have to say, oh, no, but in 1866, the federal government still doesn't let you take the stand in a criminal case, and Almost no state lets you. T- almost no state lets you take the stand. I think there's one state that does. I believe only Maine does, and the Fourteenth Amendment is adopted. So you ask, well, if that's so, if you had no, if the right isn't enumerated in the Constitution, it's not, and it's not um, a, 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 an historic right um, um, at um, the founding, and it's not, and it's not a clearly established right uh, in, in, in after the Civil War, and it's not. So where does it come from? My answer. After the Civil War, state after state after state began revising the rules of evidence and allowing criminal defendants to take the stand in their own defense, just as civil defendants were allowed, and civil plaintiffs, for that matter, were increasingly allowed to take the stand, um, uh, even though they had something to gain uh, by self-serving testimony. Um, And at a certain point in the 20th century, when almost all the states had done so, the U.S. Supreme Court came along and said, actually, the outlier states have to get on board. This is now a basic American right. Um, and, and do I think it's the most important right imaginable? No, I don't. But it's a beautiful example of this methodological question, where do unenumerated rights come from and, and, and at what time period? Because I can't get it from the founding. I can't get it from Reconstruction. And yet it's 9-0. Final point. No one that I know was talking in con, in con law land was talking about um, the right to take the stand in your own defense because as I explained in the first paragraph of the Bill of Rights as a Constitution article which became the first paragraph of the introduction of my book the Bill of Rights Creation and Reconstruction con law had gotten severed from uh, carved off from a criminal procedure in the curriculum and people who taught criminal procedure in general didn't talk to, uh, did, people who taught criminal procedure didn't teach con law and vice versa, and people who wrote in criminal procedure in general didn't write about con law and vice versa. So somehow they didn't understand that this question about the right of a criminal defendant to to take the stand in his own defense is a Ninth Amendment-like question, an unenumerated rights uh, question. It's intimately connected to issues about unenumerated rights like the right of of privacy and and, uh, uh, contraception in Griswold versus Connecticut or the right of abortion in Roe versus Wade and and its progeny. Um, Or um, possibly, you see, my, my claim is even if there weren't a Second Amendment, even if 
actually there wasn't a clearly understood right at the time of the 14th Amendment to have a gun in your home for self-protection, and there wasn't by the time of the 14th Amendment, or to, to take to carry it in certain places outside the home, and indeed there was at the time of the 14th Amendment, but even if there weren't, if today most states give you a right in their state constitutions, um, most states overwhelmingly say you have a right to have a gun in the home for self-protection and you have a right to carry it outside the home for certain purposes, recreation, sport, hunting, um, and, the, um, uh, um, and the like. It might be an unenumerated right today that the Supreme Court should um, uh, apply in all the states by analogy to the right to uh, take the stand in your own defense um, as a criminal defendant. So, so, um, so, and, um, so three different time periods, and you got to keep them straight in your mind, founding, reconstruction, and today, different theories about why you might have this right or that one. That's what interested me about, actually, um, um, the Second Amendment um, uh, uh, or um, the criminal uh, defendant's right to, to take the stand in his own um, defense. Because the, the, the Bill of Rights has been carved up um, and taught in different parts of the curriculum. We weren't asking, we weren't seeing connections. And finally, I do not believe that because um, a certain right X is interpreted a certain way, that every other right has to have the same size or shape, um, right Y and Z. That's not my view. And this came up in oral argument this week. Um, but that if, but uh, so rights have different sizes and shapes and logics and applications. So it's silly to think one size fits all, but I always want to ask, well, gee, why, if we think about right X this way, are we interpreting right Y that way? And the answer is sometimes there are very good reasons why, but I want to ask the question, but I'm not going to insist in advance that what's true for this right must also be true for that. Right. And by the way, selective incorporation um, in fact, even today in the Supreme Court has treated civil juries and grand juries differently than all the other rights. That's doctrine today. I've raised questions about that. Um, I'm not sure that, 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 that we should, especially when it comes to grand juries, um, uh, treat them differently. Oh, but I've got a theory. And civil juries, I got the, Let me tell you my grand jury theory. Because, you know, you were asking about that earlier. And I said, oh, let's not get into that. Okay, well, we're back into that. Here's the theory. At the founding, grand juries are absolutely central. Juries are the, probably the most important idea um, of the founding Bill of Rights. There are more of the Bill of Rights provisions than just about anything else because they're a perfect blend of localism and individual rights. They're mentioned in the Declaration of Independence. They're mentioned in every single state constitution. They're the only right, I think, that's mentioned in every single state consti- revolutionary era state constitution. So they're central at the founding. By the time of the 14th Amendment, I think they remain central and and uh, almost every state actually in its state constitution, a majority of them, I think, actually, I take it back, not almost every, I think 25 of the 36 states have grand juries, um, uh, grand jury provisions at the t- um, or something similar um, in, in statutory law, either provisions in their state constitution or strong state statutes guaranteeing grand juries. But today, actually... Um, about half the states don't have grand jury provisions. So um, if you think that what the privileges and immunities of citizens are, um, are basically rights that today's citizens deem fundamental and the best way to find, um, um, uh, to determine whether today's Americans 
deem something fundamental is to look at state practice today, you would still end up protecting speech, press, free exercise, um, and a whole bunch, um, whether because they're in the Bill of Rights originally or they were central um, and widespread in 1866 or they're widespread today. All, all three time periods are going to get you incorporation of almost everything, speech, press, free exercise, um, um, actually right to have a gun in the home. Um, um, but, um, uh, but grand juries, central at the founding, central in 1866, but not today. And, and, and so you have a, a choice. You can say privileges and immunities meant the rights that people thought were fundamental in 1866. That's one approach. Or you could say, actually, it's the rights that people think are fundamental at the time of decision. And, and that's a possibility, too. If you take that second path, that could explain why grand juries um, are not, haven't been incorporated today, whereas almost everything else has. See, I've got a big problem with that. To me, um, that sounds – so I, I would apply a different standard to advancing rights to, than to withdrawing rights. So yeah, and so case, would I. So, so, I so hold on, let me just finish. So that um, you, know, you said earlier that the 14th Amendment in part is a reaction to the failure of the states to guard the, to guard the rights. Okay, um, so this could be happening again, and the Fourteenth Amendment is still on the books. So, so if the states are backsliding on these rights, which are guaranteed at the federal level, the Fourteenth Amendment logic would apply again and say, no, these are rights that are that we've established at the federal level, and you can't unincorporate them, just like you can't unincorporate, you know, freedom of speech or whatever. We, we've decided these are fundamental rights. And I think, you know, um, that's very powerful. Um, and it's pretty much the view that I had back in 1991 and 1998. Now, of course, the court hasn't gone that route. Um, and I'm trying to understand what is done in the most charitable way possible. So here's the alternative um, interpretation. Um, uh, the framers of the 14th Amendment are worried about um, um, frankly, uh, one region in particular, the Southland. And um, uh, so um, uh, uh, they want to basically make sure that there are national norms um, that are imposed on this um, uh, uh, rights-defying region. Um, uh, uh, so, um, uh, but they would have been, maybe the argument is, okay, it, if there's a general move away, uh, not, not just in, in the South, but uh, in all regions, um, the general move away, say, from grand juries, um, um, because they could have said grand juries and they didn't quite. Um, now, the reason it's tricky, in my view, is I think grand juries are protected not just as um, privileges and immunities of citizens, in which case you could say, well, you know, as of, as of what time period? Because, But they're also com key components of due process of law and have been for a very long time. So, um, uh, 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 but, but Andy, I'm also trying to take, so I, I think I'm with you, you know, basically. I, I really do see your point. Especially but, when you, you think about the, uh, the level of support that's required to adopt this amendment, you know, where you need, you know, a, you know, percentage, high percentage of the states and, you know, and a high percentage of, of people in Congress and so forth. So it's an overwhelming sense that this is, you know, what we adopt. And so even if you have a lot of states uh, backsliding, that doesn't necessarily outweigh, 
you know, the the level of support required in order to adopt the amendment in the first place. So um, one person was opposed to uh, incorporation, Charles Fairman. He actually um, used grand juries as uh, one of his major arguments because he said all sorts of people are supporting the 14th Amendment even though their state doesn't provide for grand juries. And they're not talking about how if the 14th Amendment is ratified, that will be a radical change in state practice every day. And so he's making an argument. Lawyers sometimes call it elephants don't hide in mouse uh, mouse holes. So um, uh, having to have grand juries in every criminal case would be a very big deal. And um, there are some states that don't have a grand jury provision, and yet these people in these states are actually voting for the 14th Amendment without even talking about that. So maybe they didn't think that actually it meant that. Now, um, um, uh, we're getting very, very, very deep in the weeds, and I think we need to come mm-hmm. um, out, out, out of them, Andy. But, but you're beginning to see now how um, – uh, the Second Amendment, and we haven't even talked about the case, which I think we, sh- we should get, get to um, soon enough. Um, Andy, before we leave today's podcast, um, uh, and I think we're in our next one, we'll have to talk more about the specific issues raised in the, the Supreme Court case now being decided. But, be, but before we get to all of that, yet there's yet another thing about the Second Amendment that makes it just theoretically interesting, um, which is uh, um, technology has changed very dramatically. Guns are a lot more lethal today uh, than they were at the founding. How how does that factor into the analysis, if at all? So there are big changes of legal and social structure. In the founding era, um, uh, people did muster regularly um, for militia practice, at least in some places. Um, And they were trained in the use of arms. um, And that and, and today there still is jury duty, although most people shirk it, but there isn't militia duty anymore. So just the, the broader architecture of um, uh, our legal system has changed dramatically. We still have juries, um, um, uh, but we don't really have um, uh, uh, amateur militias. Um, and um, we don't have the same attitude about the central government and its armed forces uh, uh, today that we did at the founding. The founding, basically, this, the, 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 the central, uh, uh, the idea of a, of a national um, army was um, viewed with, um, uh, in many places, with something between um, um, skepticism and horror. Um, an army was seen as a group of paid, professional Mercenaries, not necessarily even um, American, um, could be foreign-born Hessians, um, could be convicts, could be vagrants. The militia was basically people in your neighborhood. Um, just It was represented, just like a local jury, a local militia. Um, but the army was seen as other, um, alien, very threatening. Um, but that's not how um, Americans came to view the army after the Civil War. The boys in blue were the good guys, you know, U.S. Grant um, and, and, and Abe Lincoln's um, uh, um, uh, 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 Grand Army of the Republic. And today, um, in, let's say, um, our uh, culture, let me take this, so maybe the paradigmatic um, army movie, that would be, um, um, which we talked about, actually, in our last episode, Saving Private Ryan. Okay. Tom Hanks is not some 
Hessian paid professional um, uh, um, a tool of tyrants. Um, actually, we don't know for much of the movie who he is. The, the people who um, are in his um, uh, platoon are actually speculating like what he actually did before the war. Spoiler alert, he, he's a school teacher from Pennsylvania. Um, he's just an ordinary person. But here's the thing. The, um, they are presenting um, that little platoon, that little squad, um, as akin to a militia, ordinary people from ordinary life temporarily serving and they want to go back home. Um, but it's not the founder's militia, in fact, because they don't come from the same locality at all. Um, Tom Hanks is from Pennsylvania. Um, uh, a couple of um, uh, the, the, the people in his little band are fast-talking ethnics um, from New York City. Um, he's got an um, a, a evangelical um, uh, sharpshooter, um, a rifleman from the Deep South, I think a place like somewhere like Mississippi, I'm imagining it, maybe actually they, they tell us. That's not your, at the, at the founding, that wouldn't be a militia. Militia are people who actually grow up together just like it's a local jury, a local militia. So, so the Second Amendment is interesting to me because our militias have changed. We don't really have them anymore. We have today our militia substitute is the army and local police forces. Uh, I believe the militia at the founding was supposed to look like America, um, just like um, a, a jury is supposed to look like America or your House of Representatives is to be broadly represented. So if you ask me what the Second Amendment originally was all about, it's the idea of civilian control, that you don't want your military to be actually a power within a power, um, a government within a government that, that's out of control and unrepresentative. Um, uh, so um, um, the idea is, oh, we want juries to, to look like the citizenry. We want um, a House of Representatives to look like the citizenry. We want our military to look like the citizenry. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms uh, shall not be infringed. That looks like actually it's a dangling modifier unless militia means people and people mean militia. The militia is the people in arms. So, so today we're talking about something that's far removed from that. Guns in homes, guns on the subway, ordinary people outside a military context. Actually, if you ask me what the, the core ideas of the Second Amendment, in fact, um, are, they're, they're ideas like, should women be equally in the military? You see, um, because if, um, oh, let me take a step back. At the founding, were women covered by the Second Amendment? Are they, are they part of the militia? Not so much. Are they part of the people? They don't vote. The preamble says, we the people ordain the Constitution. Women aren't voting for that. Um, for Article 1 says, the people shall be represented in the House of Representatives. Women aren't voting. So um, it's a nice question whether women are in the original Second Amendment. By the time of the 14th Amendment, as, we're going to, as we've begun to talk about but haven't really gone into great uh, detail, actually, the framers of the 14th Amendment believe that people have a right to have a gun in the home for self-protection, and that includes probably women um, as well as um, um, uh, men. Um, and um, so, but now, you know, they have a right to have a gun in the home for self-protection, but should they be arms-bearing on equal terms in military sense? Should they be equal in the, mili- in, in, in the military? Should they be equal in police departments? I say, oh, now I'm going to bring in yet another time period, the 19th Amendment. Second Amendment says your military should look like the people, the voters. 
19th Amendment says women are part of the voters. Oh, so therefore women should be a, a part of your, your militia. But we don't have militias anymore. We have police departments at the local level and, and the army at the national level. So Amar says Second Amendment plus 19th Amendment uh, means women as equal police officers and, and women um, uh, in the drafts just like men. Okay, now you see this is panoramic, it's intergenerational. Okay, Um, what did arms mean at the founding? What did they mean at the 14th Amendment? What do they mean today? The social structure is different. We've had all sorts of of, of amendments that have changed actually how how we think about things. That's what makes actually um, uh, the Second Amendment in particular a very interesting case study in constitutional method. Panoramic constitutional method. So you're, you're outlining aspects of the Constitution and the amendments that give the Second Amendment context. Um, perhaps uh, there's other context, perhaps some like the Third and the Fourth Amendments uh, may provide. Which we haven't context. talked about, the Second's relationship to the Third and the Fourth. I haven't really told you in a full-throated way what the Fourteenth Amendment's vision of arms bearing really was and how it was actually quite different um, uh, from the, the founding. Um, so... Um, uh, we haven't talked at all about how this applies to the, the case at hand um, and, um, and to the questions that were asked at oral argument. Um, the cast of characters, Paul Clement, actually, who was one of the lawyers in the case, um, told me that um, he had relied quite a lot on my work when he argued a, a, an earlier um, case involving um, guns before the United States Supreme Court. Um, I, I'm going to um, end with a um, uh, again, a thump, uh, a chest thumping and, and horn tooting um, um, uh, uh, set of facts, uh, uh, one fact and one teaser. Many of our audience have been taught that the most important Second Amendment case is a case called Heller. It was a Scalia opinion. I don't think it's actually that well done. And I critique it in the Harvard Law Review. Um, and uh, we can talk a little bit more about why that's so in the next episode. But Scalia talked only about the Second Amendment when actually his best arguments for an, uh, recognizing an individual right to have a gun in the home for self-protection actually came from the Reconstruction period, and he wasn't even interested in looking at all that. And that lamppost, and he, he, he just tried to shoehorn everything into a certain kind of narrow textualism that ignored the word militia and said, well, technically, you know, it's in a different clause. And, and I found his opinion... Uh, Deeply flawed, but the result, I think, was actually pretty clearly right. There is a basic right to have a gun in the home for self-protection, but more, in my view, for reasons having to do with the 14th Amendment and modern-day unenumerated rights than the founding. But you you can, it's at the periphery at the founding, but um, um, the, the people really were pouring out of their homes in Lexington and Concord with guns that they'd kept in their homes. Um, uh, so, so um, uh, but I, I didn't think it was actually... Great. The better and more important decision about guns by the Supreme Court, because they've only decided really two important cases in the modern era, was a case called City of Chicago versus McDonald. Scalia did not write for the court. Sam Alito wrote for the court. And he incorporated in that case, the Supreme Court as a whole incorporated in that case, a Second Amendment right to have a gun in the home for self-protection against states and localities. Heller involved the District of Columbia and the national government. City of Chicago versus McDonald involved um, a city, and therefore 
you know, um, which is a, a branch of the state and therefore the 14th Amendment. So that was the case in which the Supreme Court incorporated the Second Amendment against states and localities. Hugo Black would have been very happy uh, with that, following the model of selective incorporation, clause by clause, right by right. This is the one where they applied the Second Amendment. Uh, the the chest-thumping, um, horn-tooting fact that I want to share with the reader, and it connects to what we talked about, the citations and authority, is I was cited nine times in that decision, six by Justice Alito's majority opinion, a couple of times in a concurrence by Clarence Thomas, who said, if we're going to do this, let's do it right. Let's use the privileges and immunities clause of the 14th Amendment rather than other language in the 14th Amendment, which is um, what the court relied on just because it was easier as a matter of precedent to rely on so-called substantive due process um, um, line of cases rather than privileges and immunities line of cases. So, but Alito cited um, my work on, on this six times, uh, uh, Thomas twice, in dissent, Justice Breyer cited it once. Um, I'm not ideological on this set of issues, I'm, uh, which, and, and, and the citation pattern shows that because I got cited across the board by the justices. But yes, oh, I claim, actually, I've thought about these issues a lot. I've written about them a lot. I've only begun to tell the audience um, about um, uh, some, some, some of the, the deep issues that are teed up by this. The story that I will not tell today, but that I will tell in the next episode, is um, how I advised the House Democratic Caucus right after Newtown about what sensible gun control legislation would look like um, um, and would need to look like um, if it was going to pass muster at the U.S. Supreme Court. So this was close to the press, um, and I actually told them, here's how you have to draft uh, um, uh, the law here, here is what would be actually policy sensible and, and uh, have a good chance of being upheld by the court. And, um, and remember, I've been cited by the, the gun folks, um, the, the gun rights folks. So I have some credibility um, with them, but I'll tell the, the audience the story because the person who spoke right before me was named Joe Biden. And the person who spoke right after me was named Barack Obama. Um, and it was a very interesting um, uh, place to, to talk seriously about gun control. Um, and and you, our audience knows, I believe that there is a gun right, and I also believe in serious gun control, um, how these things can be harmonized, um, Well, uh, and how all that applies to the, the New York case. Well, that'll be our next episode, and I'll tell you a little bit more of the, the uh, Biden, um, uh, Amar, um, Obama sandwich story. Yeah, it looks like... Uh... You know this this case, uh, the New York case, uh, you know, goes a little bit beyond uh, the home. You know, so it'll be interesting to to see whether the the right yes. extends beyond the home and in what way. And I'm looking forward to seeing how your proposals at the time uh, for gun control would stack up against what it looks like the Supreme Court is saying uh, in the in this New York case. So right, and, of- and just just one final thing on that because the people who talk about the home say, oh, it says the right to keep arms and where would you keep them but your home even if it's about the militia militia members live in homes and they're allowed to have their guns in homes for militia use lexington and concord they poured out of their homes um with guns that they were keeping in their homes so that's keep oh but it says bear arms so that must be bear outside the home other folks say oh no bear arms it's just a purely military connotation i'm gonna say 
its core connotation actually was military. Um, you could stretch it to mean carrying guns, which is different than bearing arms um, in non-military ways. That's a bit of a stretch um, at the founding. But by the time of the 14th Amendment, there was more discussion, not merely of bearing arms, but of carrying guns in places um, right to left from um, places from Roger Tawney's Dred Scott opinion on the one hand, which identified a right to carry guns or carry arms out, um, as one of the, quote, privileges and immunities of citizens. Tawney says if blacks were citizens, they would have this right. Oh, so they could never be citizens. On the right, you have Tawney linking carrying guns to privileges and immunities of citizens in a landmark case called Dred Scott, 1857. And on the left, the Reconstruction Republicans passing not just the 14th Amendment, but a Freedmen's Bureau bill that talked about a personal right, um, and a personal liberty to keep and bear arms, presumably um, in homes and in private non-military ways. So the fr- framers may have had one vision, uh, very much about Lexington and Concord and, and Bunker Hill and, and, and local militias. Framers of the 14th Amendment may be a different vision and today in state constitutions, yet another vision um, uh, going beyond um, even self-protection and sometimes in many states talking about um, recreation and, um, and, and sporting and, and hunting. And the one thing we haven't really talked about at all is how that right might get weighed against other rights that may be in conflict with it. So a lot right. to talk about next time. Thank you. Thank you.